Ahoy there, Phil Hellings. I'm Brandon Hubner, captain of the ship over at the Maritime History Podcast. I'm very much looking forward to Ryan's take on Carthage and whatever else he has on the agenda for us today. But first, I'd like to invite you to add the Maritime History Podcast to your playlist for whenever today's episode wraps up, that is. Being that my podcast is a maritime history podcast, anything connected to mankind's relationship with the sea is fair game. Thus far, we've talked about the seafaring exploits of the major ancient civilizations, those in Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Levant, the Aegean, and the Indus River Valley. Our first season concluded with a look at the Sea Peoples and the Bronze Age Collapse, but in Season 2, we've followed the rise and growth of the Phoenicians, a people renowned for their maritime skills and ventures. We've also recently begun a maritime-centric look at the early Greeks and their colonization, so at the time this episode and my next few are going on air, my podcast and Ryan's History of Ancient Greece are almost hand-in-hand, you could say. Ryan and I were actually chatting recently, and we've found that we both share a similar affinity for the chance that podcasts lend us to present the nuance and detail of history, much more so than you'll be likely to find in many of the shallow generic histories that are presented in any of the other places in the modern media age that you can probably think of offhand. Where Ryan has thus far delved into great detail on the particularities of Greek history, and he's done an amazing job at it, I might add, but where he's done this for Greek history, I am attempting to do for maritime history. So, while we attempt to lay the necessary groundwork of world history on my podcast, we set aside a special focus on ships, ship iconography in ancient art, shipbuilding techniques, styles, methods, materials, what all of those can actually tell us about the people who constructed the ships. We, of course, also look at maritime religion, shipwrecks themselves, the archaeology that goes into researching shipwreck finds. An episode on the Khufu ship from Egypt was a particular favorite of mine so far, so maybe start with that one. As the naval age sets in for Greek history, where we are in our podcast timeline, we will start to look at naval history in all of its glory as well. All in all, maritime history is world history, or at least that's what I am trying to show on the Maritime History Podcast. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, you can learn more about our podcast at MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com or just search for us on iTunes, Twitter, most other social media sites that you may be a part of. Thank you for the chance to present my humble podcast to all of you. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming where you'll hear the next chapter in the history of ancient Greece from the one and only Ryan Stitt. Thanks, Ryan. Hello, and welcome back to the history of ancient Greece. Episode 28, The Rise of Carthage On the northern tip of Tunisia, sitting on the Mediterranean Sea and outside the modern city of Tunis, are the remains of one of the ancient world's superpowers. Surrounded by much larger empires, and with little land themselves, the Phoenicians of Carthage made a name for themselves by being pragmatic, open to new ideas, and endlessly innovative. These pioneers built an empire that dominated the Mediterranean world for over 600 years by developing some of the ancient world's most groundbreaking technology. Where we left them in episode 14, sometime in the mid-6th century BC, Carthage had begun to step forward to lead the Phoenician resistance against the Greek presence in the West. Well, now we are going to circle back and talk about Carthage's rise, and ultimately their conflict with the Western Greeks that would shape the 6th and 5th centuries BC in the Western Mediterranean. First, let's talk about where the Carthaginians came from. In order to do that, we will give a brief overview of the Phoenicians. We have already discussed them in various capacities, as they encountered the Greeks, 
but this episode will be primarily geared towards what set Carthage apart from the rest of the Phoenicians. So let's begin. During the late 9th, early 8th centuries BC, the Phoenicians from Tyre established numerous colonial cities along the central and western Mediterranean coasts in order to provide safe harbors for their merchant fleets as they sought out natural resources to satisfy the demand for luxury trade goods for the succession of Near Eastern empires that ruled over them. But the Phoenicians were able to tap into previous trade networks that had already existed. They first arrived on the island of Sardinia and engaged in relations with the local Naragic people, establishing the colony of St. Embenia, now modern Algaro, on the northwestern part of the island. It was a mixed venture, in which Naragic and Phoenicians lived side by side and cooperated in commercial ventures. They became heavily involved in the trading network with the Etruscan kingdoms of central Italy, across the Tyrrhenian Sea, and shortly thereafter is when the joint Phoenician-Greek venture at Pithecusae, on the island of Ischia in the Bay of Naples, was established. Both trading posts had a diverse demographic that included indigenous people and a sizable number of Phoenicians. It is believed that Eubians were also resident at St. Embenia. The Eubians and Phoenicians cooperated with one another because their commercial objectives were complementary, rather than competitive, and they worked with the natives. Indeed, one might argue that it was in these first colonial ventures in the central Mediterranean that one witnesses the growth of a middle ground, on which Phoenician, Greek, and indigenous populations interacted and cooperated. But the Tyrian colonists had a different strategy for colonizing than all other Mediterranean peoples. While the Greeks had been content to island hopping across the Adriatic, some Tyrian colonists went as far away from the Levant as possible. This actually had a very good reason attached to it, besides getting out of a crowded market, as Tyre had their eyes on the Iberian kingdom of Tartessos in southwestern Spain, in the modern region of Andalusia. It was a key trading hub for metals from the interior, especially silver and iron, as well as tin from the mysterious land of Albion, which is the Greek name for Great Britain. Whereas the Greeks, for instance, when they arrived at a land that they wished to settle, they would war with the indigenous peoples and take a city over. But the Tyrian colonists set up shop next door to the natives and set up trading posts with the locals in order to obtain the metal ore and agricultural produce from the interior. However, these new Phoenician outposts were purely Phoenician ventures, not intermixing with the local population, as at St. Embenia and Pithecusae. These settlements reflected typical Phoenician sites, being defensible from the land and accessible by the sea. After securing a lucrative metal trade route with Tartessus, the Phoenicians began to push westward, beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which is the ancient name for the Straits of Gibraltar, and from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. Here, beyond the edge of the known world, the Phoenicians established the colonies of Lyxus and Mogador, on the western coast of modern-day Morocco, and the city of Gades, modern Cadiz on the southwestern coast of Spain. Chosen for its deep natural harbor and its location opposite the mouth of a river and on a long, narrow promontory, meaning it was surrounded on three sides by water, Gades would soon become the main transport hub for Phoenician trade in the western Mediterranean. The wealth of Gades came mostly from the vast amounts of silver ore found in the interior that could be shipped down the river. The colony's prosperity was reflected in both its rapid growth and the construction of elaborate public architecture. In fact, it was the only Phoenician urban center on Spain. The city's centerpiece, a temple to the Tyrian city god Melkart, supposedly held an olive tree made of solid gold that bared fruit made of emeralds. It was here that the Phoenician sacred rites were performed, oaths were sworn, and citizens were reminded of their connections to their Levantine homeland. The wealth of Gades almost permitted the Phoenicians to establish several additional colonies along the southern coast of Spain, some of which expanded their activities from trade into manufacturing and also became agriculturally self-sufficient. In essence, Gades acted as the focal point for Tyrian interests on Spain. The favored route from Tyre to Gades took ships over the northern Mediterranean first to Cyprus, then to the southern coast of Asia Minor, Rhodes, Malta, Sicily, and Sardinia. The final leg of the journey went to the Balearic Islands, then the southern coast of Spain, and through the Pillars of Heracles to Gades. They returned by following along the coast of North Africa, to Egypt, and then the Levantine coast. It was no coincidence that many more Phoenician colonies sprang up in the central and western Mediterranean along these vital trading arteries, like links in a giant chain. 
North African colonies soon followed, like Utica, Lepsis, Hippo, and Aldrumentum, which acted as way stations and depots for this Phoenician trade route. More colonies popped up on the Balearic Islands, an archipelago to the east of Spain, as well as on Sardinia and Malta, and finally on western Sicily, those being Panormus, modern-day Palermo, Solus, modern-day Salento, and Macha. When Carthage arrived on the scene, it was just another Tyrian colony, sending offerings back home and just trying to get rich from the lucrative trade routes. But within a century and a half, however, Carthage would overtake the other colonies in both economic and cultural strength, and it would soon come to far outshine the luster of its Phoenician parent. This was achieved because the Carthaginians, for whatever reason, were different than the rest of the Tyrians. But why? Well, that is a very complicated question, and one which we will try to answer in the rest of the episode. Despite descending from the Tyrians, who gave the world its first alphabet, Carthaginian primary sources are lacking. Since they became a Mediterranean economic superpower, there must have been books, scrolls, and tablets written in detail about their activities and commercial enterprises, at the very least. But they no longer exist, probably having been destroyed when the city was sacked and burnt to the ground, much later by the Romans. Probably because of this as well, not much of the original city survives either, with only a few tomb inscriptions and monuments that archaeologists can read. Thus, most of the info that we have on the Carthaginians comes down to us through the biased works of Greek and Roman authors, in which the Carthaginian people are often portrayed as untrustworthy, greedy, and deceitful expansionists. In fact, the Romans even had an expression, fides punica, or punic trust, as a slur to describe treachery. Thus, we are left with a prejudiced history and have to sift through the bias in order to find enough kernels of truth to weave a coherent narrative. As with other great and powerful cities, the Phoenician colony of Carthadost, or New City, better known as Carthage, had its own unique and extraordinary foundation myth. It probably contains at least some elements of truth, but we must keep in mind that it stems from a tangled web that runs through the mythologies and histories from the Greco-Roman tradition. The prejudice that the Greco-Roman historians imposed also makes the task even more difficult. In addition, for the earliest history of Carthage, they were relying on much older sources that we don't have any longer. The Roman author Virgil backdated the foundation of Carthage to the time of the Trojan War. He did this because in his Aeneid, which he wrote during the period of Augustus, he was trying to connect Rome to an illustrious mythical past by claiming Trojan ancestry for the Romans and to foreshadow the future hostilities between the two nations. So with all of this bias and ulterior motives in mind, here is the foundation myth of Carthage. According to the legend, the story of Carthage began with the Tyrian king Matan, who passed away in 831 BC. Prior to his death, he had stipulated that his two children, Pygmalion and Alyssa, should rule jointly over Tyre. Alyssa was also known as Dido by the Greco-Roman sources. However, Pygmalion wished to rule by himself, so as soon as their father was laid to rest, with the backing of presumably a large faction of the Tyrian elites, he seized the throne and moved quickly to eliminate all rivals. He immediately set his sights on Dido's husband, a man named Acerbus, also called Zacharbaal, who was the high priest of the Tyrian city god Melkart a deity often associated with the Greek Heracles. Acerbos also happened to be their uncle, and thus was of royal stock himself. So he had him killed because he was the one man who could challenge him, as he had both the authority and wealth comparable to the king. Dido, though, was spared, because she successfully convinced her brother that she bore him no ill will over his actions, and was not a threat to his rule. But in secret, she began plotting, along with the other Tyrian nobles who hadn't joined Matan to flee the city. When the plan was finally executed, they all boarded the ship secretly at night and sailed away. She took along with her the substantial hoard of gold that belonged to her dead husband. This entire time, she had managed to conceal all of this from her brother. The party made first for Cyprus, where they were joined by the high priests of the goddess Astarte and the 80 sacred prostitutes that frequented her temple. They would serve as wives for the fleeing nobles, because, well, you need females to procreate, and thus keep the Phoenician line intact. 
After leaving Cyprus, their next stop was the Tyrian colony of Utica, a coastal city in modern Tunisia that was west of Libya and Egypt, along the North African coast. They were welcomed warmly there, but despite this, Dido and her party were determined to establish a colony of their own, and thus they entered into negotiations with a local Libyan king named Yarbis for the purpose of acquiring the land. Utica was on his property, and he graciously allowed the Utikans to exist in exchange for tribute. Even with all of the gold that Dido had with her that she could use to buy the land, Iarbis was weary of ceding too much territory to the newly arrived Phoenicians, and thus become outnumbered in his own land. So he agreed to sell them only as much land as could be covered by a single ox hide. So Dido agreed, and shrewdly they promptly cut a hide into very thin strips, and then used the strips to circumscribe a hill, known as the Bursa, which would serve as the heart of their new colony, Carthage, or the new city. Several years later, though, after Carthage had grown into a stable and prosperous colony, a bitter and jealous King Yarbis returned to threaten its destruction, unless Dido agreed to marry him. Either option meant that Carthage would be eliminated as a rival, as they would either be destroyed or become his own through marriage. But the pious Dido was torn between her love for her people and her fidelity to her dead husband. Before a decision could be made, she had a pyre built to make a sacrifice to Acerbus' spirit. But once the pyre was fully ablaze, Dido climbed atop it and stabbed herself with a sword. Apparently she was unwilling to see Diarbus' demands and thus forsake her husband. Despite or perhaps because of her sacrifice, the Libyan king chose to spare Carthage, which then went on to grow and thrive over the succeeding centuries and ultimately overtake the local Libyan tribes. It's not mentioned why he didn't just eliminate them, as he clearly was already unnerved by their existence. But alas, that would ruin the story. Anyways, like most myths from the ancient world, there is also another story to the ending of Dido. This one involves the Trojan prince Aeneas, who has a layover in Carthage and tells her about the destruction of his city, before falling in love with her, getting ready to marry her, and leaving in the middle of the night for Italy, where he would found the Roman race. In her grief, Dido proclaims, O Tyrians, pursue my hatred against this whole line and the race to come, and offer it as a tribute to my ashes. Let there be no lover treaties between our peoples. Rise, some unknown avenger from my dust, who will pursue the Trojan colonist with fire or sword. She then built a funeral pyre and stabbed herself on top of it. The problem with this version is that the destruction of Troy predated the earliest estimates of the foundation of Carthage by almost 400 years. So while it's a nice story to explain the later hostilities between the Romans and Carthaginians, it is just a story. And with both of these versions, it is doubtful whether any of these lavish tales of love, loss, and cunning correlates with the actual reality of Carthage's foundation. Although most of this story originated long after the city had been founded, like most myths, the origin of some of its elements can still be detected, though. For example, the part about the oxhide probably stems from the fact that the name of the city's central hill, the Bursa, is similar to the Greek word for oxhide, and thus later Greek authors may have weaved in an elaborate tale to explain the similar names. However, it is far more likely that the hill's name, at least on the Carthaginian side, came from the Akkadian Burtu, which means fortress. Also, there really was a Matan and Pygmalion on the historical record, though not much is known about their reigns. Regardless of its fanciful foundation myth, Carthage more than likely was founded because its location was along the trading route to Gades. The traditional date of the foundation of Carthage was given as 814 BC by ancient scholars. Archaeologically, the earliest occupational layers currently extend back as far as 760 BC, but the excavations at Carthage are still in progress. Since it takes some time to actually build a city from the ground up, this seems to corroborate the tradition of a Carthage existing in the late 9th century BC. Regardless, the site of Carthage had a geographical advantage over the other Phoenician colonies, as it lied in the heart of both the north-south trading circuit that centered on Sardinia and the east-west route between the Levant and southern Spain. Thus, it's no wonder that the colony grew over the next century to become the most wealthiest in the Phoenician world. This also was aided by opportune timing. After the Phoenicians fell under Assyrian occupation in the mid-8th century BC, their ships and crews were commandeered to support Assyrian campaigns and their desire for more and more luxury goods. 
While the city of Tyre wasn't technically incorporated into the Assyrian Empire, their independence existed in name only, and all Phoenician commercial activity was now under the direct control of the Assyrian king. In contrast, the Phoenician colonies only experienced the power of Assyria indirectly, through a general increase in the demand for Mediterranean trade goods. Thus, the 8th century BC became a prosperous time for the Phoenician colonies, and Carthage, with its population bolstered by Levantine refugees and its trade networks firmly established, was well positioned to profit handsomely from the new state of affairs. And so they did. By the end of the 8th century BC, Carthage had become a bustling urban center, with a population already approaching 30,000 people, making it one of the biggest cities in the world at that time, which is quite remarkable when you consider that it was barely a century old at that point. Although archaeological excavations has yet to locate any of the important public buildings or harbors from this early period, current evidence does indicate that the city was filled with densely packed homes made of sun-dried bricks, laid out on streets, with wells, gardens, and squares, all situated on a fairly regular plan that ran parallel to the shoreline. By the early 7th century BC, the settlement was surrounded by a three-meter-wide wall. So swift was the development of Carthage, that already within a hundred years of its existence, there is evidence of demolition and redevelopment within its neighborhoods, including the relocation of an early cemetery to make room for metalworking shops. However, in contrast to the colonies of the Iberian Peninsula, the wealth of Carthage was not derived from ore extraction, but from trade. The north-south route was of particular importance for Carthage, as it linked the city with Sicily, Sardinia, Italy, mainland Greece, and the Aegean region. A considerable amount of Greek pottery, both Euboean and Corinthian, has been found in the earliest layers at Carthage. It is clear that Carthage had positioned itself on the trading circuit that had been established between Etruria, Pithecusae, and Tyre. By the mid-7th century BC, Carthage had grown to become a major manufacturing center, as well as a regional trade hub, with an industrial area just outside the city's walls that featured potter's kilns as well as workshops for purple dye production and metalworking. Luxury items, including terracotta figurines, masks, jewelry, and ivory figures, were also crafted for export to the other Phoenician colonies. Pottery, very similar to the Greek style, was actually made in Carthage itself, suggesting either that a community of Euboean potters was active in Carthage, or that the Carthaginians had quickly began to imitate their forms. Thus, it appears that either from the very beginning, or quickly thereafter, Carthage became a cosmopolitan trading center and attracted settlers from a number of different ethnic constituencies, although it still carefully preserved its Tyrian heritage. Soon the city's architects and engineers had to find a way to house them all, a challenge that would lead to the most remarkable urban building boom in antiquity. There was something very important to the Carthaginian psyche about staying within the walls of Carthage, so the pressure to accommodate this was very strong. The Carthaginians thus became the first on a massive level to turn the city's sky into private property by building apartments. These were as high as six stories, very densely populated. Luckily, they had a seemingly endless supply of limestone at El Hararia on Tunis Bay that was both easy to work with and quick to put up. Archaeologists speculate that they cut these blocks of stone by using the simplest of means, water and wood. After they chiseled a dotted line channel along the face of a rock, they'd stick a wooden wedge in there and then wet the wood. What would happen naturally is the wood would expand with the water, and the increased pressure from the expanding wood caused the stone to crack in almost perfect lines. From there, they separated each block using other metal tools. Once the massive blocks of stone were quarried and transported to the city, the Carthaginians used pier and panel style construction to quickly transform Carthage into a dynamic city. For each urbanized archaic age city to survive, it needed a constant source of running water. Carthage was no different, so the city's engineers turned to cisterns. Each was made of a double layer of ash and clay that made it super tight. Every home enjoyed access to a cistern through a series of pipes and channels. The Carthaginians had fully equipped bathrooms with tubs, sinks, and even showers by the end of the 7th century BC. We have evidence of domestic plumbing way before the foundation of Carthage. Remember the Minoans? 
But it is Carthage. By the end of the 7th century BC, with the Carthaginian town of Kirkoane, that we have evidence of water usage, and more critically, sewage. Anyone can put in a bathroom, but in Kirkoane, we see a unified, single system that has piped water to the kitchen and bathroom, and then piping the water out to a common sewage system. This was evolutionary and revolutionary. Since there was very little hinterland around the city of Carthage, it was forced to rely on overseas resources for most of its food supply. But as Carthage continued its expansion in terms of population, its demand for resources also increased. In response to this need, Carthage would found several new colonies on the southwestern coast of Sardinia. But these new colonial expeditions were very different from the older Sardinian colonies founded by the Tyrians. They lacked religious and public buildings, as well as significant populations, and were fortified defensively. This was because their inhabitants no longer sought to permanently settle there, much like the trading posts at Almina or Pithecusae, but instead of mixing or bargaining with the locals, these colonies were geared strictly towards the maximum extraction of mineral resources and agricultural produce in order to service a growing Carthaginian population. Carthage spent the last quarter of the 7th century BC in a general trajectory of increasing growth and prosperity to the point that business went almost uninterrupted following the collapse of the Assyrian Empire. They were growing into a true city-state, brimming with magnificent temples, glittering palaces, and high-rising houses. But as Carthage's flame burned brighter, the flame of the Tyrians burned out. During the first quarter of the 6th century BC, there was a dramatic decrease in the amount of metal being shipped from Spain to the Levant for two reasons. First, there seems to have been an oversupply of silver already in the Near East, as the Phoenicians had spent the last century importing it in ever-increasing measures in order to satisfy the insatiable desire of the Assyrians. Thus, the small Spanish colonies, who relied on the frequent runs of Phoenician trading ships to keep them resupplied, had to be abandoned. Secondly, the situation was exacerbated by a prolonged siege of Tyre by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, who quickly stepped in to fill the power vacuum in the Levant brought on by the collapse of the Assyrian Empire. We will discuss this in more detail in a future episode. Anyways, the siege lasted for over a decade and wrecked further havoc on Phoenician maritime trade before Tyre eventually fell. While the regional silver glut did a great deal of damage to the east-west trading circuit, which was primarily controlled by the Tyrians, it had little impact on the Carthaginians, whose commercial activity was keyed into the north-south trading circuit of the Tyrrhenian Sea. But with the newfound disappearance of Tyrian ships in the western Mediterranean, this presented a major opportunity for Carthage to expand its own trading networks further, and thus was a catalyst for their rise to superpower in the 6th century BC. Some scholars argue that Carthage quickly sought to dominate the Phoenician colonies in the western Mediterranean through military pressure until they relented and accepted Carthage as their overlord. But this is more than likely influenced by later Greek authors who created an image of an aggressive and imperialistic Carthage. However, no matter what their initial aims may have been, or the means in which they were employed, it is true that Carthage did ultimately use this opportunity to expand, and by the end of the century, they would have control over all Phoenician colonies, effectively replacing Tyre as the mother city, although it could have simply been due to economic reasons rather than military conquest. It seems that Carthage's newfound imperialistic policies may have arisen in response to similar actions being taken by the Greeks, their main commercial rivals in the central Mediterranean. As we have discussed in episode 14, at the start of the 6th century BC, the Greeks had embarked upon a second massive wave of colonization westward. Their presence posed a significant economic threat to Carthage. But encroaching on their trade routes wasn't the only threat. In addition, the Mediterranean Sea was filled with roving bands of pirates, who were always looking to commandeer ships laden with precious metals and other exotic goods. This was a constant threat, so the need for better defensive measures against it led to major advances in shipbuilding by both the Phoenicians and the Greeks, that eventually culminated in the Trireme, the supreme warship of the age. By the 6th century BC, 
Triremes were widely used by both the Greeks and the Phoenicians to accompany their trading ships through these treacherous Mediterranean waters. However, despite their growing economic animosity, and the fact that there were warships cruising the Mediterranean, surprisingly there is no record of any direct sea battles in the early 6th century BC between these two commercial rivals. In fact, when military conflict finally broke out, it happened on land, not on sea, and unsurprisingly, it was on the centrally located and resource-rich island of Sicily. We discussed the events in Sicily up until the mid-6th century BC in greater detail in episode 14, but here we will give a brief review. The Phoenicians had arrived on Sicily first, on the western part of the island, in the 8th century BC, and made commercial relationships with the native Elemians. When the first Greeks arrived decades later, on the eastern part of the island, they seized the land that they wanted and violently expelled the native Sicils and Sicani, who resisted them. They continued to push westward until they had control over the whole eastern coast and much of the south. In doing so, the Sicils and Sicani were forced into the interior of the island. Thus, not surprisingly, this led the Elemians to ally themselves with the Carthaginians, who by the 7th century BC, as we have discussed, were becoming the dominant Phoenician colony in the central Mediterranean, and thus had the power to aid the Elemians, if they needed it. Content, for now, on their sides of the island, a quasi-stable situation resulted in which each side continued to prosper economically from this new status quo. It was only in the early 6th century BC that the Greeks started to eye the less populous Phoenician territories in the west and northwest. Eventually, in 580 BC, colonists from Canidus on Rhodes attempted to establish a settlement on the northwestern Sicilian coast, opposite the major Phoenician island colony of Matcha. An angry Carthage thus invoked their alliance with the Elemians, and a combined Carthaginian-Elemian military force engaged the Greeks and prohibited them from establishing a colony, driving them back into the sea. In the battle's aftermath, Macho was fortified with defensive walls and watchtowers. But by this time, the Carthaginians were not the only ones who were a bit worrisome about continued Greek expansion westward, as the Etruscans began to take notice too. It was all fun and good at first, because hey, they were getting rich, but now the Greeks were becoming too aggressive and cutting into their piece of the pie. So this led the Carthaginians and Etruscans into a regional trade alliance. Carthage had already developed strong diplomatic ties in Etruria, for Tyrian merchants had long operated out of Etruscan ports, but now these same privileges were extended to the merchants of their Carthaginian cousins. Although the alliance between Carthage and the Etruscans appears to have dealt predominantly with matters of trade, joint military action was also envisioned if their economic interests were to continue to be threatened, which by now, I'm sure you can tell that that is exactly what's going to happen. But before we get there, there's a few key Carthaginians that we need to introduce. Up until now, besides the mythical Dido, there really isn't any mention on the historical record of any specific Carthaginians, but that changes around 560 BC, when a Carthaginian general named Malchus was said by later Greek sources to have conquered all of Sicily, and sent captured booty back to Carthage. Conquering all of Sicily probably meant that the Phoenician cities on western Sicily, those being Matcha, Panormus, and Solus, had fallen under Carthaginian control. Furthermore, he was able to capture some Greek territory, the extent of which is unknown though. It is possible that he was opposed by Phalaris, who as you recall, made himself the tyrant of Acragus. In any event, there was a long war, of which we know nothing except that Malchus was successful, and some Greek territory was lost to the Carthaginians. However, Malchus tried to do the same on Sardinia, but was heavily defeated in the process. Unwilling to accept such a humiliation, the Carthaginian Council of Elders punished Malchus and his troops by sending them into exile. Naturally, unwilling to accept the severity of this sentence, this led Malchus and his troops to rebel against their home city. After putting Carthage under siege, Malchus captured the city, but lost his life in the process. We aren't sure on the veracity of this account, but if there's any basis in truth, then it may be literary embellishments about a short-term Carthaginian intervention to protect their interests on those two islands. In any event, the growing power of Elemian Segesta during the mid-6th century BC 
acted as a buffer that prevented the Carthaginians and Greeks from confronting one another at this time on Sicily. According to the sources, Mago was the king of Carthage from around 550 to 530 BC. The term king is used loosely here, and appears to have been built on a misunderstanding of its oligarchic government. Although Dido was the first mythical queen of Carthage, the monarchy, if it even existed, didn't last very long, as the city was managed by a ruling council of Phoenician nobles from what seems to be its earliest beginnings. It seems that the idea of a first female queen who died childless not only stood as a neat justification for this oligarchic system, but also denied any hereditary right to autocratic power. Anyways, this council controlled all important judicial, governmental, religious, and military organs of state. Oftentimes, the most wealthy and powerful nobles among them would be granted significant executive power, typically in regards to military command, with the ongoing consent of his colleagues. Greek writers thus called them kings incorrectly. A more better term would probably be leading general of the military. In regards to Mago, he was viewed upon as king because he was the godfather of a long line of influential family members, called the Maganid dynasty, that would be the supreme family at Carthage for over a century. In reality, he was probably something closer to a leading citizen, or a Greek basileus. The Carthaginian council still had their power, but he held a lot of sway, and his heirs continued his work after he died. Mago gained his notoriety as he was the leading general of the army, and under him, Carthage became the preeminent military power amongst the Phoenician colonies in the western Mediterranean. As we have discussed previously, the Phoenicians were excellent seafarers and Carthage took no exception. They had one of the best, if not the best, navies in the ancient world at the time. Carthage was serious about its trade empire. Business came first, and the military was there to ensure it continued smoothly. Carthage had managed to establish their economic and military strength at a time when Tyre was facing Persian domination and the Etruscans were engaged in expansion across Italy, starting with the formation of the Etruscan League. But that would soon change with the arrival of the Phocians on the scene in the 6th century BC at Massalia and Emporion and on Corsica and Sardinia. When the Persians sacked their Anatolian homeland in 546 BC, a new wave of Phocian settlers sailed west. These new arrivals quickly turned to piracy, preying on Carthaginian and Etruscan merchant ships around Corsica, which continued unchecked for five years. Fearing that the Greeks would threaten their colonies in North Italy next, the Etruscans joined forces with the Carthaginians to oppose the Greeks sometime around 540 BC. It is not known if the Carthaginians had allied with the Etruscan League or with individual Etruscan cities. In any event, Tensions remained high for several years, until a naval battle erupted off the coast of Alalia in 535 BC. The goal was to expel the Phocians from Corsica. The Carthaginian general Mago commanded the allied Etruscan and Carthaginian fleet of 120 pentaconters. It is assumed that the Phocians had about half that, with 60 pentaconters. Details of the battle are sketchy. But Herodotus says that the Greeks had driven off the Allied fleet, but had lost almost two-thirds of their own fleet in doing so. The rams of the surviving ships had been severely damaged. Realizing that they could not withstand another attack, the Greeks packed up their belongings and families and deserted Alalia. Carthaginian and Etruscan battle losses are not known. A legend describes how Greek prisoners were transported to Etruria, where they were stoned to death while the Carthaginians sold their Greek prisoners into slavery. The message was clear. The Phocians were brutally warned to keep out of the Tyrrhenian Sea. Following the battle, Corsica once again fell under the power of the Etruscans, and the coasts of Sardinia were attacked by Mago's two sons, the elder Hasdrubal and the younger Hamilcar. A 25-year struggle ensued for Carthaginian pacification of the island. However, almost immediately, the Greeks were pushed off of the island, and it was the natives, who may have received aid from Sabaris, the richest city in Magna Graecia, and an ally of the Phocians, that resisted the longest. Thus, the chance of establishing a chain of Greek settlements between Massalia and Sicily was now over. While Mago's two sons were busy in Sardinia, Mago was busy further west, as hostilities with the Massalians soon followed. 
Carthage lost battles, but managed to safeguard Spain and close the Straits of Gibraltar to Greek shipping, while the Massalians retained their Spanish colonies in eastern Iberia, above Cape Nail. Southern Spain, though, was still closed off to the Greeks. According to the sources, the Carthaginians brought about the collapse of Tartessos by 530 BC with armed conflict. Carthage also besieged and took over Gades, bringing about the pacification of the two strongest cities in southern Spain. However, the collapse of these two may have had nothing at all to do with a Carthaginian invasion, as suggested by the sources, and everything to do with internal feuding and the collapse of the Levantine metal trade, which was the main source of wealth for the Iberian elite. Even if a Carthaginian military invasion did take place, it would have been temporary in nature because there is no archaeological evidence to suggest a prolonged Carthaginian occupation of southwestern Spain at this point. Most of their efforts appear to have been directed towards the reorganization and expansion of existing Phoenician settlements on the southeastern coast of Spain and the Balearic Islands. While the Carthaginians were busy fighting in Sardinia and Spain, the Persians had taken over Cyrene by this time. More on that in a future episode. Luckily for the Carthaginians, they were spared from further Persian incursions westward because the Phoenicians refused to lend ships to Cambyses in 525 BC for an African expedition against their kinfolk. If the Persians had pressed westward, who knows what may have happened? Could the Carthaginian army have kept the Persians at bay while simultaneously fighting the Greeks? It's a big what-if in history. Anyways, we will talk about the Persians in much more detail in a future episode. When Mago died, he was succeeded by his elder son, Hasdrubal, who ruled from around 530 to 510 BC. Hasdrubal was elected as quote-unquote king 11 times, and was granted a triumph four times, making him the only Carthaginian to receive this honor, as there is no record of anyone else being honored to that extent for Carthage. Under him, the Carthaginians succeeded in capturing the southern half of Sardinia forcing several local tribes to flee to the mountainous interior. Archaeological excavations confirm the mid-6th century BC as a time of extreme conflict on the island, with several Carthaginian and Naragic settlements bearing signs of destruction. The Carthaginians under Hasdrubal were also advancing in another direction, into the African interior. Whether through military conquest or diplomatic deals struck with local Libyan chieftains, Carthage slowly expanded its control over the fertile Majerda Valley in modern Algeria and the Cape Bon Peninsula in modern Tunisia, through the construction of a number of forts and settlements. They did this because although they were strengthening their overseas trading networks during this period, the Carthaginians wanted to gradually move away from their heavy reliance on overseas imports of food. Aside from providing additional agricultural produce, the new African holdings also provided land for the construction of large villas for the wealthy Carthaginian elite. By the end of the 6th century BC, Carthage had conquered most of the old Phoenician colonies, subjected some of the Libyan tribes, and had taken control of parts of the North African coast from modern-day Morocco to the borders of Cyrene. It was also fighting wars to defend its Punic colonies and building up a commercial empire. However, only the details of its struggle against the Sicilian Greeks have survived in detail, which has led to the traditional impression that Carthage was obsessed with subjugating Sicily, which is not true. Carthage was expanding their territorial control over the North African coastline when unexpected visitors arrived from the Greek mainland, looking to establish a new colony. As we discussed in episode 22, Cleomenes was chosen as the next Agiad king, which angered his slightly younger half-brother Darius. Believing that he was more capable than his half-brother, the proud and haughty Darius wanted to make a name for himself, so he decided to leave his home city, and thus asked Cleomenes to allow him to establish a Spartan colony on the Libyan coast, to the west of Cyrene, and to the east of Carthage. Happy to be read of a potential rival, Cleomenes gave him his blessing, and the colony, called Sinips, was founded in 515 BC. The Carthaginians, though, weren't too pleased to have Greek colonies nearby. So three years later in 512 BC, Hasdrubal led a combined force of Carthaginians and Libyans to expel the colonists. Carthage's aggressive response appears to have stemmed less from the geographical position of Darius' settlement, but more from his ambitions to extend the territory of his colonial foundation westward 
into the fertile region of Sirtis Minor, which Carthage too had an eye on. So in order to head off any future Greek attempts to colonize the area, Carthage almost immediately after this founded the city of Leptis Magna, some 50 kilometers away from the ruins of the abandoned Greek settlement. After returning to Sparta, a humiliated Darius decided to lead a second colonial expedition in 510 BC, this time to western Sicily, at the site of the old Punic colony of Eryx. He proclaimed that he intended to reclaim the territory that had once belonged to Heracles and his descendants. Furthermore, the Spartan royal family, as we have discussed, claimed to be descendants also of Heracles. So after receiving what he perceived as confirmation of success from the oracle at Delphi, who told him to, quote, found Heraclea, the one in Sicily, end quote, Darius set off with a new expeditionary force. After he had taken Eryx and established a new colony, however, a combined force of Carthaginians and Segestans, led by Hasdrubal, immediately defeated them once again in battle, this time killing Darius. Almost all of his leading companions also perished. According to Herodotus, Uri Leon, the only one of the chiefs who escaped, made himself master of Manoa and changed its name to Heraclea due to their heritage. Hence, the site's name is now known to modern scholars as Heraclea Manoa, fulfilling the prophecy that they would establish a Heraclea in Sicily. Apparently, Darius just chose the wrong location. Anyways, the irony is that had Darius just endured Cleomenes' rule and stayed in Sparta, he would eventually have been made king, since Cleomenes died a few decades later and left no sons, but only one daughter, whose name is Gorgo. As he was next in line, he would have ended up marrying her and becoming king, but instead she ends up marrying Cleomenes and Darius' younger half-brother and her uncle, Leonidas. As we will see, he will play an important role in the upcoming Persian War. Meanwhile, in Italy, following their victory at Alalia, there was a revival of Etruscan power, but that would be short-lived. In 524 BC, there was a huge battle outside of Cumae. The growing power of the Cumaean Greeks led many indigenous tribes of Campania to organize against them under the leadership of Etruscan-controlled Capua, but this Etruscan army was defeated by the Greeks, reasserting their power in Campania. Things would begin to unravel for the Etruscans in the next several decades, and finally, in 509 BC, the Romans overthrew the Etruscan yoke, abolishing their monarchy and establishing the Roman Republic. With the Carthaginians in the west, the Greeks in southern Italy and eastern Sicily, and the Romans in central Italy, the Etruscans saw themselves being relegated to the northern Tyrrhenian Sea. Back at Carthage, Hasdrubal eventually died due to battle wounds received in Sardinia and was succeeded by his younger brother, Hamilcar, who ruled from around 510 to 480 BC. Under his reign, Carthage concluded treaties with several states, most notably with the newly established Roman Republic. Signed in 509 BC, the treaty formalized a division of influence and commercial activities for the two powers as well as sought out assurances of peace from the Carthaginians to the Romans. This treaty is the first known source suggesting that Carthage had gained control over Sicily and Sardinia, as well as Emporia, in the area south of Cape Bon in Africa. Carthage may have only signed the treaty with Rome, who at the time was an insignificant player in the Mediterranean, because the Romans had treaties with the Phocians and Cumae, who were aiding the Romans against the Etruscans. There is no evidence as to the Etruscan reaction to their former ally agreeing to do business with their former vassals, but I would suspect that they weren't very happy about it. But then again, there was nothing that they could do about it either. Anyways, under the terms of the treaty, the Romans could only enter Carthaginian waters if they were under duress and could do business in Sardinia, but only under Carthaginian oversight. On the other side, the Carthaginians could continue expanding their influence into Sicily but the Roman home province of Latium was off-limits. This was a fantastic deal for the Romans, who despite being the far weaker of the two, essentially was able to get the budding Mediterranean superpower at the time to recognize them on equal footing. The events of the 6th century BC matched the three western powers against each other, as they all sought to gain the upper hand in the trading circuit of the central Mediterranean. The Greeks appeared to have been bloodied up a bit following Alalia, as they lost their foothold on Sardinia and Corsica, as well as in western Sicily, but they would come roaring back. 
This time, though, it wasn't the Massalians that led the charge, but the Sicilian and Italian Greeks, as a coalition of Magna Graecians teamed up and sent out two punches, one aimed at a surging Carthage and another at a weakened Etruria. Only one would leave the Battle Royale a winner. Find out who, next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 29, The First Greco-Punic War. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which... I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, and Patrick G. for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Apollo's Liar, from his album, Apollo's Liar. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.